This is my journey, inspired one story at a time. A library of leaders was created. It began as a journey to learn. As time went on, it began to grow. All it needed was a platform, and this podcast was created to listen, to inspire, to share. I am a storyteller, and this is my journey. Welcome to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. I am your host, Steve Anderson, and today's guest is Christopher Avery. Dr. Christopher is the founder and CEO of The Responsibility Company, one of the go-to organizations for executive leadership development and change management training. They have been in business for over 30 years. The responsibility process has been used by leaders at top companies, including Microsoft, Whole Foods Market, Verizon, PayPal, eBay, and Wells Fargo, just to name a few. Dr. Avery is an author who has written two books. Teamwork is an individual skill which shows readers how to develop skills that will enable them to thrive in any team and under any circumstances. And his most recent book, The Responsibility Process, Unlocking Your Natural Ability to Live and Lead with Power. This book offers practices obtained from 25 years of applied research on responsibility, taking, and leadership. Dr. Avery is also a speaker who is popular with audiences interested in agility, effective leadership, and the results that benefit an organization and its employees. We had a great discussion today. Um, You can hear his his wisdom and his experience, and I would almost say kind of his zen tone uh, that that just shows you that he really does understand this stuff and and understands leadership and how powerful it can be. So uh, sit back and, and relax and enjoy a great conversation with Dr. Christopher Avery. Welcome, Christopher. It's uh, great to have you on the program today. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. Why don't you just give us a little bit of background of you know kind of where you grew up and where you went to school and kind of where you're at now, just so we get a little context before we start our discussion. Oh, fun. Okay. Um, I was I was born into a, a suburb of New York City. My dad worked in Manhattan, and uh, they had just built a home in Chatham, New Jersey, when uh, I came along a year later. Um, when I was six, my dad got transferred to a plant, a manufacturing plant in Ashtabula, Ohio, in the northeast corner of Ohio on Lake Erie. And so I spent my adolescence there. Um, I have one of those illustrious uh, college careers. I was not prepared to be a student, so I could, I ended up being seven years in three universities, one in Arizona uh, and two back in Ohio, uh, and um, and not long after that, uh, I spent um, almost a year starting my career in Southern California, and then I decided to go back to grad school, and um, that was in Ohio, and then 12 months later, I was in a PhD program here in Austin, Texas, where I live now, and I've lived either in Austin or or nearby 90 miles west of here for 16 years uh so i've been here for gosh maybe 40 years now in and around central texas oh that's great well austin's a great town although it's changing a lot a lot of people are uh, a lot of people are coming your way it looks like 
a lot of people coming our way, you know, tremendous uh, appreciation in the real estate market, lots of complaints from, you know, people living on, you know, labor rates or uh, month to month uh, paychecks, a lot of complaints about them not being able to find places to live and having to move further and further out. So yeah, pretty typical story of a of a city that's been expanding rapidly for decades. Yeah, yeah. Now, you've written a book called The Responsibility Process, Unlocking Your Natural Ability to Live and Lead with Power. And so just why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about personal responsibility, and, and I think you say that it's foundational to leadership. So dig into that a little bit and, and tell us what you mean by that. Sure. Um, well, uh, so we define personal responsibility as owning your power and ability to create, choose, and attract. So, you know, uh, ever since Socrates, uh, success gurus have said that taking 100% responsibility is the first key to success in any endeavor. And what that means is that there is a resourceful part of the mind, I call it a mental state, where we have an exceptional ability to respond to anything that's not going well in our life. We have other mental states where we get stuck thinking there's nothing we can do. So, you know, for 2,000 years, gurus have said, you know, you must take 100% responsibility if you want to have success, but they haven't said how. And uh, that's where I come along. So um, many years ago, I stumbled into a little research program going on that was, uh, that was figuring out these mental states that we get into that even smart, wise, motivated people get stuck and, and do what we call avoiding uh, responsibility. Uh, even though they don't think they are, they think they're being a good person, which is, you know, being a good character, which is called being responsible. Um, but they're not operating from that part of their mind where they can see clearly and resourcefully be resourcefully about what to do to either 100% accept the situation or change it. So for me, personal responsibility is what the gurus have said for ages, and that is the ability to respond, response ability. And so just to, to dig into that just a little bit further, so explain maybe, uh, and I think you did, but maybe uh, in a, say it in a different way, what is the difference between being a responsible person versus taking that 100% responsibility you just described? Yeah, thank you. So uh, the word responsibility is, is one of those loaded words. It has thousands of meanings. And, uh, and so it's useful to make this distinction. A, a responsible person is a person that's lived up to the expectations of society. So generally, generally we shorthand that by saying, you know, stay in school, uh, get a good job, uh, join a family unit, stay out of trouble, contribute to society, check the box, you're a person of good character, you're a responsible citizen. Um, but you can be a person of good character and a responsible citizen, according to society, and still uh, 
be mired in places in your life where you are not taking 100% responsibility for, uh, for what's going on. Okay. And, uh, you know, when, when I think of responsibility, it, it, you know, it, it, I think you say in your book that it calls for constant reflection and correction, uh, kind of intellectual curiosity and emotional growth and centering, uh, but also needs uh, results as well. So um, tell us a little bit more about that concept. Sure. So let's use the, the last thing we just talked about, the difference between a responsible person and and uh, taking 100% responsibility and bring it a step forward into this question that you just asked me. So let's say that we've got a, a fellow named John and uh, John's 45 years old, hard worker, um, has a reasonably good job, uh, is married and has family. Um, but uh, so John checks all the boxes about being a responsible citizen but he hates his job. Uh, he feels trapped uh, and burdened every day when he wakes up and thinks about having to go to work. Uh, he feels ashamed that he can't find a better job, isn't making more money. Um, he, uh, he doesn't think he's living up to the expectations of his family, uh, et cetera. So these are places where he's what we would call in the responsibility process research. He is stuck in mental states of justify or shame or obligation. And when we're in those states, uh, we actually believe there's nothing we can do because the cause effect logic in those mental states is very simplistic. And Steve, we think, John thinks the problem is out there, right? Or even maybe he thinks he's the problem. There's something broken in him uh, that he must change. And what, what our research shows is that if John can simply be aware of his mental state, then he has the ability to shift the mental state out of blame or justify or shame or obligation and shift it into responsibility. And if he does that, he will have access to different cause effect uh, thinking in his mind. And he will have uh, much more resourceful, um, much more resourceful thought processes about you know how he can get more of what he wants, and so that's what the reflection part is. the The reflection part is that um, there's nothing we can do about these mental states, and I haven't really explained the mental states to your listeners yet. So hopefully, this is piquing some interest. We can't change this pattern in our mind of what we call the responsibility process. It's always there. It gets triggered every time something goes wrong. So what we can change is we can change how we use our abilities of intention, uh, awareness, and confront. Those are, we call those the three keys to responsibility. So that's where the reflection would come in, is learning how to uh, do what we call practice responsibility. Every time something goes wrong, we can learn to actually shift our mental state into a more resourceful state. So you mentioned that there are these mental states that, uh, you know, are part of all this. So do you want to go into that a little further and uh, uh, tell us what, uh, what those are called and, and uh, how they affect us? Sure. So 
Um, if you have a piece of scratch paper in front of you, you can write this down. I'm talking to you and, and your listeners. Uh, or it's just a simple stack of, of uh, one phrase and some words, uh, so you'll be able to hold it in mind. So a stack of words starting at the bottom is uh, the phrase lay blame. And above that is the word justify. Above that is the word shame. Above that is the word obligation. And then there's a line above obligation and above the line is the word responsibility. And so each of these is uh, a mental state that we adopt. So it's, it's true for all of us. So it seems to be hardwired uh, in the mind. And uh, the pattern, the process gets triggered every time something goes wrong. And how many times a day do things go wrong, big or small, right? Many, many, many times a day. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. And every time something goes wrong, the pattern gets triggered and we enter the pattern at the bottom. So our first response to things going on is looking for who we can blame. Who did this to me? Who built that sidewalk that way that I tripped over it? You know, who, who thought to put the luggage rack over there? Um, you know, honey, have you seen my backpack? You know, it's, it's an amazing, just a unconscious response every time that we have a little irritation about uh, having something different in our life than what we wanted to have in that moment. Uh, and you can stay in any of these mental states, uh, especially the ones when you're stuck, you can stay in any of the mental states below the line for a second or a day or a year or, or a lifetime, or you can simply let go of the mental state. That's the fascinating part to me about it, Steve, is you can stay stuck for a short time or forever, or you can consciously let it go through you know, reflection and awareness. And you graduate upwards. So if you let go of blame, you graduate up to justify. Justify is, is blaming conditions instead of an individual or entity. So lay blame is always about people or groups, teams, departments, uh, et cetera. Justify is about blaming circumstances, the weather, uh, time, the budget, the process, um, the economy, uh, COVID been the number one justify in the world for the last two and a half years. It's a big one, but it's still, you know, if, 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 the, if our rationale for why we can't move forward in our life, can't have what we want, if that rationale is COVID, 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 you might be stuck in justify. Um, and, uh, and if we decide to stop making excuses or stories, then we graduate to shame, which if you think about, you know, a pointer, the pointer has been pointing outside and now we reject everything outside of us. We reject blame and we reject justify. So that pointer turns around 180 degrees and points to self and and says, okay, you're the problem. <laughs> I'm the dummy, I'm the dolt. Uh, I was so stupid. Well, I never learned, gosh, you know, what's wrong with me? And uh, if we, so that's just blaming self. And when we stop blaming ourselves, then we land in what we call obligation, which is uh, the mental state of have to, don't want to. Um, and this is where resentment and resistance comes up is when 
when we believe that we're stuck in a relationship or a pattern uh, or a routine or a promise uh, that we no longer uh, are enjoying. Um, and so we say, I have to go to my boss's stupid meeting. I have to do this kid's thing after school. I have to go to my in-laws for holiday. I have to do my bills. You know, I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to, is the language of um, busy people uh, in, in the world these days. And uh, it's also, you know, shame and obligation also are considered, quote, being responsible, right? So if you're beating yourself up for making a mistake, you look around and you see people, you know, applauding you, oh, good boy, he's taking responsibility. But shame is not responsibility because you've got, you're stuck thinking that something's wrong with you. And, uh, and so you, you're not in this free, free place in your mind of being truly resourceful. And, and obligation is called responsibility by society. Uh, but the truth is that, uh, that in obligation, we, we also aren't in that mental state of responsibility. So we are, um, you know, we get rewarded throughout our lives for staying in there, for sticking with it, even if we despise it, right? We get rewarded. And the truth is that's worth taking a look at. And so uh, until we refuse to feel trapped in whatever situation it is, uh, whether it's a job or a relationship or something else, the moment we refuse to feel trapped, our mind actually starts flipping us up into responsibility. And we can start examining the situation to see how we can unwind that situation in our life and, and create it to be the way we want to. So that's the responsibility process, that stack of words. And the research is only about 40 years old. Uh, and so for me, when I discovered this, when I, I didn't discover the, this pattern, I discovered the research in progress. When I discovered it, it, it became just so compelling to me, such a simple model, with such profound implications every day of my life uh, that it's become, you know, one of the most important and foundational uh, tools that I know and have to share. Well, thank you so much for going through that. I think it's very well said and very clear on how that works. And, you know, because I run into a lot of people, too, that just seem to get frozen in their careers, you know, where, um, you know, they may be in any one of those four stages you just talked about. But, uh, you know, and, 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 and sometimes they feel like they they can't make a move or, or, you know, it's just, uh, they're not willing to take that risk. And sometimes I would, I would assume that taking a risk is, is part of getting from one of those uh, categories you've mentioned to, to the other and, and getting out of it eventually into responsibility. Well, the primary risk I think you take is, um, is acknowledging your own humanity and, and being willing to let go or surrender the lower mental state to allow yourself to rise to the next mental state. Could it be a, could, could it be an external risk? Yeah, it could be exposing yourself to others or, you know, um, you know, crossing a, a chasm of maybe not having some income for a while in order to let go of something you don't like in order to move to something you do like it. For me, it has more to do with intention awareness 
and confront. And so the risk would come in uh, around the awareness part um, about whether or not, you know, making the change that I want to make in my life uh, is, is really risky or not. Um, yeah, and I that think that could get us yeah. into a whole nother ballpark of saying, you know, is, is, is money the, the thing that makes you happy? Right. I don't think so. Well, it's interesting. I don't think so either, but it's so interesting when, you know, you look at people like in the arts and if they're really going to see their purpose as being in that and they're going to go for it, they almost know that they're going to start out at such a ground level that, you know, the starving artist or the, you know, the uh, someone in music who's playing for hardly anybody, you know, in the audience and, and, but that's almost where you have to start. And so it's almost like they calculate that risk and say, if I'm going to be this, I have to go through that. And I think in business, we're much less willing to do that, um, you know, just because, uh, well, whatever reason, it's a, we, we don't see it. But w- w- once you see that your purpose of what, if you can divide, define your purpose, then maybe you're willing to, to dig the ditch for a while to get there. Yeah, and um, we sometimes uh, talk about um, – we use the question, how plush is your cell? Right? So when, you know, let's talk about the, the career person that would really like to make a change, but, uh, you know, is so concerned about not being able to pay the bills or, you know, the financial aspects of it. Uh, with that person, if I was mentoring that person, you know, I, I might, if, you know, if I can build rapport with them and, and allow them to help me confront the truth, I might ask them, you know, how plush is your cell? In other words, you know, how how much have you made commitments into the future, financial commitments into the future, that you, you know, you can't afford to to change a thing. Um, you know, you're loving your two cars and your three car garage and the motorcycle and the boat and uh, and uh, everything else, and you've got payments for most of them, and uh, you know, you really like that backyard barbecue. Uh, yeah yeah so what so what do you you know one of the the, yeah one of the basic rules of of wealth building has always been to you know spend less than you make and to not make future commitments uh so we get to help people look at that yeah yeah i can i can imagine and so how does the abundance and scarcity mindset uh, come into all this as well um I mean, do you see this playing a role in, in trying to take on more uh, more solid responsibility? Absolutely. Yeah. So when I'm in the mental state of responsibility, I see opportunities and choices and abundance and options and uh, clear paths uh, everywhere. And so I'm, I'm really glad you asked this because we use this language of scarcity and abundance as well. And when I'm below the line, when I'm in blame or justify shame or obligation, my world is entirely scarce. Um, so I, I feel powerless. I don't see options. I think there's nothing I can do. I think that's just the way it is. The world is a tough place. It's a jungle out there. You've got to uh, take what you can get, um, you know, scrap, <laughs> fight for every scrap, et cetera. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and then the 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 opposite of that is is the people that, uh, you know, I've often heard that that people that that just do well in this area is that they they see things as opportunities that most of us wouldn't. You know, they just they miss it. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, here's an opportunity. And uh, the people that are in the abundance mindset see it and, and, and grab it and, and take it to the next level where so many people don't even see it. Well, that's true. So, uh, you know, I think um, gratitude plays a big role, right? So I think people who see opportunities that others don't see are probably already starting from a place of being grateful to be born a human and uh, and grateful for uh, what they have and, and for what they do. Uh, a, a lot of us have been, I, I grew up very much, probably more than half of my life, uh, I grew up with a very much a poverty, scarcity kind of a mindset, um, seeing everything as limited and, uh, and therefore it made me uh, be greedy and um, uh, and looking for an angle, uh, you know, and things like that. So it's a, it's an interesting model, scarcity versus, uh, abundance. So what was your light bulb moment when you went from the way you just described yourself used to be to, to how you are now? Well, the first light bulb moment was when I learned about abundance thinking, and it's often taught as prosperity thinking. And um, to me, they're not the same. I think that someone can live a, a, you know, financially meager existence, and they can still operate from the mental place of abundance, right? The, the story in the Bible about the poor woman who, you know, only had two pennies, and she gave them away to the, to the collection plate. And, uh, and the story about her was that she, you know, gave more than the, the rich folks who gave bags of gold. Um, so for me, abundance is, uh, is, is, you know, I guess is seeing your, your world as abundant, your life as abundant, regardless of necessarily the financial circumstances. And then when you do that, I think more opportunities come to you. To tell you the truth, Steve, I have um, I have studied and practiced and taught scarcity and abundance ever since I first learned about it. And so it's been for me, it's been an incremental process of affirming over and over and over uh, and catching myself looking at things as scarce and and figuring out how to let go of that or release that so that I can see them uh, as abundant. But I did have a light bulb moment uh, five or six years ago that made a significant difference. And it had to do with um, an aspect of my personality. Uh, and that is that uh, I had a, I was dealing with a, a health issue and I was seeing a um, acupuncturist and the acupuncturist asked me to recite these five Reiki principles every morning. She, she wanted me to take my shoes off, go out in the backyard barefoot and stand in the grass and recite these five principles. The five principles are, it starts with just for today, I will release worry. 
Just for today, I will release anger and be at peace. Just for today, I will uh, be kind to all living beings, starting with self. Just for today, uh, I will do my work honestly. Uh, and just for today, I will be grateful. Um, and I started doing that. And of those five, four of them felt congruent with my beliefs and with my practices. I felt solid and I felt in integrity when I stated four of them. There was one that when I stated it, I felt, you know, I felt a, a pit in my stomach or a catch in my throat or a, you know, a little, uh, a, a little uh, something in my chest, which told me that I was not in integrity with that item. That, and that one was, I do my work honestly. And as I reflected on that, what I learned uh, was that um, I have been, for most of my life, I've been using intellectual horsepower to get things done and to even bowl over people and get what I want. Uh, and a little piece of that was uh, a tiny belief somewhere unconsciously that I had to, I think I said this earlier in our talk, that I had to find an angle. I had to be a little smarter than everyone else. I had to figure out how to hook people. Um, and, uh, and as soon as I really realized that, the, the light bulb moment hit, and I realized that I could let go of that. Um, and when I let go of that, what ha a, 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 you know, a weight, I shed, I shed a weight of some kind. And the main thing that happened was any kind of uh, imposter syndrome that I'd had during my life went away. I no longer had any kind of imposter syndrome or feel like I'm faking it. Um, and I show up much more with much more heart than, uh, than intellect. Um, and, uh, and I have no interest in uh, getting an angle on anybody. So I'm much more open and transparent and honest. Yeah, so that, yeah that, that's amazing. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, what you're talking about there is just know thyself and then also owning your behavior. You know, um, that's one of my things is, uh, you know, I just, I just want people, including myself, to own your behavior. We all do things maybe by mistake or by habit or whatever, but you have to know it and then you have to own it if, if um, that's what you've been doing. That's all true, which is that awareness, intention, awareness, confront, or the reflection, as you mentioned. Absolutely. So let's uh, jump into a little bit, too, here in the book. You talk about the difference between accountability and responsibility. So um, define that for us, and how are they different? Sure. Uh, again, this goes to uh, word meanings, and uh, each of those words has uh, thousands of meanings. Um, you know, you, you get a hundred people, you'll probably have 500 meanings for responsibility and, and accountability. I use it as a tool to help my students, uh, think through the difference between what does it mean to have performance expectations? Uh, so you, so you have a role, whether it's husband, wife, worker whatever, 
And in that role, there's performance expectations. Hopefully they're negotiated uh, in advance, um, but not always. And, uh, and so what's the difference between that and this place in the mind where we have this resourceful ability to respond? And that's primarily it. The, um, the words are used interchangeably in many societies. They're certainly used interchangeably in English. So it's, I joke that you look up responsibility in the dictionary and it says, you know, accountability and you look up accountability and it says responsibility. Um, and interestingly, there are many languages that don't have two different words uh, for responsibility and accountability. They just have one word. Uh, Spanish doesn't, German doesn't. Um, the, those are the first ones that I think of. And, and I tell those people that, you know, thank goodness, because it's even more complex when we have multiple words that are used uh, interchangeably. But the way I prefer to use them uh, is that responsibility is the ability to respond, which means it's, it's referring to our psychology. It's referring to how our mind works. Um, and so I, I assign the word responsibility to, uh, to that place in our mind where we find freedom, choice, and power. Uh, I tend to use the word accountability uh, in the way that the word origin was, you know, etymology of where the word came from. The word came from actually counting the king's money, accounting. Uh, and everything had to be accounted for, or the accountant might, you know, lose a limb or a head. Yeah. And yeah, so accountability is a performance expectation in a relationship. And and to go on just a little bit more about that, um, accountability, accountability in my mind is the first tool of management. Uh, and. Uh, and I think most managers could, and most organizations could learn to understand that better. Uh, and that's something I would love to have more managers and more organizations take responsibility for improving. Is there ever a time where maybe taking on the responsibility, you know, isn't what you should do? I mean, I kind of think of like, let's, let's take a sports team, for instance, and the team plays horribly. And uh, they lose, and then uh, the coach would say, uh, "I take a hundred percent percent responsibility. It's my fault. Uh, we'll work this out, and we'll get better, and whatever." And sometimes you hear that, and you think, "Well, I don't know if that's really true." So you know, it, it's uh, sometimes I think people want to take responsibility, and and maybe they shouldn't. Do you think there's times when that happens? Well, yes, um, and. You know, so what we say, so there's a lot we can get into here, Steve. Um, first, responsibility is about, is about signing up to uh, address a problem or, or fix a space or expand an opportunity. So I say anybody can take responsibility for anything. The bat boy can take responsibility for having had a bad season. Um, it doesn't mean that the bat boy is saying it's my fault because the ability to respond is about from here forward. It has nothing to do with who caused what in the past. Um, so 
Uh, so that's the first thing is anybody can take responsibility for wanting to improve or change or alter the future of some situation or scenario in their life or in the world. For instance, um, one of my uh, gurus was Dr. R. Buckminster Fuller. And what he taught in answer to the question, what should I do? Uh, he said, what you should do is what needs to be done. He said, look around your world, whether that's a neighborhood or a city or, or a state or a country or a world or an industry or something else and see what needs to be done in your eyes that nobody else is doing and go there. Uh, and that's what I've done with responsibility is I, you know, I decided that the world I believe has a, has a misunderstanding of how the mind works and how responsibility works in the mind. And nobody was doing anything about it that I could see. So <laughs> I raised my hand and, and decided to go do that. Um, so so that's, that's that side of it. On the other side of it, we also teach don't pick up somebody else's monkey. Right? So we, we, we talk about the monkey on the back. Um, so picking up somebody else's monkey would be maybe saving somebody uh, from uh, experiencing something negative, but in saving them from experiencing something negative, you also save them from thinking through it for themselves and getting the consequences and, and figuring out how to improve. So we see that with a lot of parenting who get so, so much anxiety by seeing their kids experiencing failure. So they save their kids and save their kids and save their kids and their kids get to be 40 years old and they're still saving their kids. So they miss, so yes, they, they miss the opportunity to learn the lesson, so to speak. Absolutely. So there's plenty of time. I, I, I would never want you to pick up somebody else's responsibility and alleviate them of learning for themselves. Yeah. In the, in the book, you talk a little bit about positive interdependence. So how do you set that up in a business or a company? Oh, wonderful question. Yeah, so three types of interdependence, negative, uh, neutral, and positive. Uh, negative interdependence is when your rewards, your structure and your rewards in a company are pitted against others. Um, so right now I'm working with a large uh, global organization and I'm working with uh, one of their sales territories uh, and they all have got uh, individual compensation plans and individual bonuses, yet they all agreed that they need to be working as a team and collaboratively uh, in order to deliver the results business expects of them. So they've got a structural issue. Uh, they've got you know, negative interdependence built into how they work together. So they're, they have incentives to not help each other to not share information, uh, et cetera. So let's move on. Independence is when you are completely independent of, uh, of others. This is what a lot of people ask for at work. Can I just have a job where I can execute it myself? I don't have to work with, depend on others, right? Um, unfortunately, there's not many jobs like that uh, around these days. 
positive interdependence is when you are working hard towards your goals and I watch you and it's making my life easier. And the reason is that we have somewhere out there in the, in the future, weeks or months or years, we have line of sight to very common goals. So you working hard is helping me achieve my goals. It makes me wanna match you and put my shoulder you know, to the grindstone with you. Uh, and the way organizations can do this, they, you know, mostly we, we've been dependent on doing it culturally, you know, by sharing common vision and line of sight to purpose and, and goals and mission and things like that. Uh, we do it through uh, team building, um, but we can also do it structurally. And that is to just figure out how to uh, design uh, roles and relationships and accountabilities that, that uh, don't pit people against each other and that actually uh, create situations where people see that the person next to them is, is working towards a, a similar goal. And, and you can do it in terms of bonus systems and the way you do it with compensation or bonus systems, uh, the rule of thumb would be that uh, you know, your, your largest bonus would be um, a collective bonus based on the performance of the entire organization. Uh, or maybe the organization that you have line of sight to, maybe, maybe it's a business unit. If you're in a mega corporation, maybe it's, you know, the performance of the business unit that you're in. And then you maybe some cascading bonuses down to um, the department and the team level and, and the, the smallest bonus should, I've always said, should be your individual compensation, your individual, uh, your individual effort bonus. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now you mentioned goals, so let's talk about goals a little bit. Help, help us understand what is a good goal. Kind of describe to us what you think a good goal is. Sure. So my mentor, the father of the responsibility process, did a thought exercise uh, around good goals based on our responsibility research. And, and he says there's four characteristics uh, of a good goal. And I agree with him. I, I think this is a, a really nice little um, set of information. So let me make sure that I can uh, recall it here. So the the first characteristic of a good goal is it, um, it clarifies intention, clarifies intention. So remember, intention is one of the three keys to responsibility. And psychologists and philosophers and spiritual teachers tell us that intention is everything, right? So when, we, when I get clear about what I want, I go. And when I'm confused and and have muddy intention, I stop. So the first characteristic of a good goal is it clarifies intention. Um, in other words, it clarifies what you really, 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 really want. Um, the second is that it focuses attention. So intention and attention are sisters. And you know, if you're the kind of person that gets distracted distracted a lot, ADD, flipping around from one thing to another, you're sort of spraying your attention all over the place. And 
when you get really focused on something, you know, that you want to get done or create, you know, like, let's say this weekend, we're going to paint the living room, right? You get clear intention that you're going to have the living room painted uh, by the end of the weekend. You know, your, your attention gets on that. You get your shopping lists and you get the paint ordered and you get the furniture moved and, you know, all weekend long, your attention is on that, you know, that main thing. So clarify intention, focus attention. Uh, the third one is remove obligation. A good goal removes obligation. So I often get to counsel people or mentor people around goals to say, so how many, how many quote goals do you have on your agenda? that you haven't done anything about uh, in a long time. And everybody has a bunch of them. And, and I'd say, well, I believe that that goal deserves to be fired or refactored because it's not doing its job, right? It's not pulling you forward. Um, and you're probably procrastinating on it and procrastination comes from a state mental state of obligation, right? Have to, don't really want to. Uh, so a good goal removes obligation. And the fourth item is a good goal generates energy. Uh, and so if you use this list, these four items, and do an inventory of all the, quote, goals in your life, you might find out that a lot of what you call goals are actually shoulds or ought tos uh, or somebody else's goal that they've put on you and you said yes, but your heart doesn't really say yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes when, when you have everything lined up, you know, perfectly and you've got a dream team with a lot of talent and sometimes those teams don't perform as well as other teams. And so, um, you know, what's going on there? What are, is there, are their uh, goals misaligned or their purposes misaligned or what happens when that really talented team just can't perform as well as other teams are able to do? Yeah, well, probably they're not really a team. Probably they're just a group of individuals and they're probably not aligned, as you mentioned. Uh, they haven't done the hard work of actually clear about what they want as a team and what they intend as a team. Uh, and they haven't done the work to uh, integrate with each other. So the, the work to build trust and, uh, and safety and uh, openness and honesty and transparency with each other. So, you know, I think everyone has heard over and over and over that you can hire the brightest and the best um, as, as individuals, but if they, you know, if you don't know how to help them become a team, then uh, you, know, you just still get subpar performance. And you can take a group of misfits and if they really become a team, watch out. Yeah, yeah. They can do great things. And, and with your working with different organizations and helping them build these teams and communicate better as teams, do you find that in corporate America or, or in business today that most people want to be part of a team and want to be want to work as a team? Or do you think there's this uh, push for that individuality, like you'd mentioned earlier, that some people just want to want to work on their own? Yeah, you know, I've been at this work for more than three decades now, and I would say that there's a lot of movement um, 
over those three decades towards people wanting to be part of a collaborative unit, wanting to be part of a cool thing, wanting to be part of a team. Uh, I think there was much more focus on individualism uh, years ago. Yeah, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. I'm not sure where uh, this quote came from, but I read it in the book and it, I thought it was just very powerful. And the quote is, what began as an ugly caterpillar of angst morphed into the beautiful butterfly of purpose. That That's a pretty profound yeah. statement. So <laughs> did you write that? Did you come up with that? Or did, is that a quote from somebody? I, you know, I'm not recognizing it as being... Um, something I wrote in the book, but I recognize the metaphor, the transformative metaphor of butterfly, of, of you know, caterpillar to butterfly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just thought that was a, a cool way to, to, to say kind of uh, finding your purpose. And, you know, and I would agree with you going back to teams that, uh, you know, uh, collectively, I mean, it's it's common conventional wisdom that collectively a good team can always come up with a better uh, idea or a better product or a better outcome than any one individual can. And, and when you do that together as a team, it just feels good. It just feels like um, it, it just gives it that much more pleasure when you can accomplish something. It does. Yeah. My first, my first book was about teamwork and shared responsibility. It was called Teamwork as an Individual Skill. And the subtitle was getting your work done when sharing responsibility. And the suggestion was just what you said, uh, which is that you can do so much more uh, together than you can do alone. I'm always intrigued with uh, people that don't start out as authors, but then write books. And so uh, what's your process and, and how do you do it? Uh, are you somebody who sits down and just, you know, bangs away at it and gets it done and dedicates time? Or do you wait till you're inspired? What's your process? You've written uh, two books now, I believe. So. Right. I think I might have to write a third book before I can tell you what my process is. My first, <laughs> yeah. my first book was um, a wonderful accident. And that is that I had started an email newsletter in the, in the late 90s. And after a couple of years, I had, uh, I had 100 uh, wonderful um, posts and... I met uh, somebody from uh, a publisher, Barrett Kohler, and uh, they took a look at it and they said, you've got a book here. All you need to do is write an introduction and a conclusion chapter and figure out how to organize these hundreds items, hundred items into sections and chapters. And so that's what we did. Uh, so cool. it was the, the, yeah, yeah. So I, I would not say that I, learned a whole lot <laughs> in that process um, about writing a book. The responsibility process book uh, was a birthing that took years to, to gestate. And um, I couldn't just make myself sit down and write it until I had gotten to an internal place where I thought that I had developed my own practice of responsibility enough that I understood how to write that book. And so, you know, it, it came 10 years after uh, I was doing keynotes and workshops all over the world on the responsibility process. And people kept saying, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? And I sat down in 2013 and tried. And I wasn't able to. Uh, but in 2015, I felt it. Uh, and I did just block time 
Um, I, I think there was a long period of time that I didn't have a lot of travel, a lot of work. I just blocked time and uh, I drafted it in four or five months. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I think I, I do have two or three more books in mind. The next one will be a collaboration with my mentor, Bill McCarley. Uh, and I think that will be a, an entirely different process. That would be one where we sit down and pose questions and answer them with the, with the recorder on. And we send the recordings off to be transcribed. And then we do the hard work of turning all those chaotic transcripts into something meaningful. Yeah, it it, it's, uh, it, it intrigues me because uh, I'm, I'm trying to sit here thinking which one of the four stages am I am under responsibility because I, uh, I had a public member on my board once tell me that I was the most well-written CEO he'd ever seen. And so part of me wants to say, oh, I'd love to write a book and I'd love to do that. But for whatever reason, uh, that's about as far as it gets. So it's, uh, I'm just always interested in those that can accomplish it. And by the way, your book is well done and very well written. So uh, I, I was impressed with it. Thank you so much. Well, I can offer you something I've remembered for, I don't know, 20 years when I first met um, the founder of, of Barrett Publishers. And... Uh, he was, we hadn't, we hadn't produced the teamwork book yet, but when we sat down to talk, the first thing he said to me was, he said, well, you clearly have something you want to say. And I've always remembered that. So if there's a yeah. tip for you here, Steve, maybe it's, <laughs> yeah, you want to write a book, but is there something you want to say? Exactly. Exactly. Well, sometimes I think that I, I just, uh, collect what all other people say and take the best parts of it. So maybe I feel like I have nothing original. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, that, that, that hasn't stopped a whole lot of people from writing a book. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. You know, Christopher, usually at this time of the interview, I always ask my guests a similar or the same question. And that question is, in relation to leadership, what is a pearl of wisdom that you could leave us with today? Yeah, thank you. Um, if... if if we can be so generous, uh, I can think of two. Sure. Uh, so the first one is, um, let me set this up this way. I believe that leadership is a natural consequence of someone who is in motion towards uh, a purpose or a goal that's larger than them, so they require help. So in our whole history of, I, I'm going to use a, foul term of, of vomiting stuff about leadership, we've turned leadership into, um, you know, a role. And I, I don't think leadership is a role. Uh, I think it's, um, so if we, if we, if we take away the artificial uh, aspect of an organization, and just look in nature, we see leadership in nature. Um, you know, we see leadership among a group of boys in the neighborhood, and one of them has this great idea to build a treehouse, and other kids follow, right? and they build the treehouse. Um, so, so then the second, I guess, nugget is, to me, leadership is responsibility and nothing else. So if 
if I decide that I want to pursue something that's larger than me, and if I do my own work to understand myself, so we, we say, you say lead yourself first, we say that leadership is 99% self-leadership. So if you're leading yourself, if you know your, your values and your beliefs, and, uh, and if you know where you're going, and you're pursuing something big and important uh, and something that produces great value for many people, then don't be surprised to see other people uh, joining along with you and following you and wanting to help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's well said. Well, Christopher, thanks so much for uh, taking this time with me today. Um, you've obviously put a lot of time and research into the your thoughts and, and your definitions and, and defining responsibility and what it means. And I, I think I learned a lot today and I'm sure our listeners have too. So I appreciate your time and your insight very much. So um, thanks for doing the podcast and um, uh, I really appreciate uh, uh, what we learned today. Thank you, Steve. I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak with you and to um, bring this material to your audience that may not have heard of it before. And, uh, and it was fun. I appreciated your questions and our conversation. Okay. Well, thanks so much and uh, take care and we'll see you down the road. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Profiles in Leadership. To listen to all my interviews, subscribe to Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and many other popular podcast platforms. Some of these interviews are on video, and you can search YouTube for Profiles in Leadership with Steve Anderson. You can also access the entire library of interviews on my website, orange.coaching.com, and that is orangetheword.coaching.com, and go to the Media Center and click on Podcasts or Video Gallery. You can also enter the website from pilpodcast.com.